0: Uh, We're starting today, or I'm starting today, a a four-part short sermon series on the Old Testament book of uh, of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on which way you pronounce it. Different people pronounce it differently. Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Um, And the way that things have been planned, uh, as you've heard in the announcements earlier, uh, Trevor Gillanders is preaching next Sunday in both services. So I decided that this morning... And tonight, at 7 o'clock, we'll have the first two messages. And then we will finish the series with the last two messages on uh, the 25th uh, of of August, the week after next, 11 and 7 p.m. It means if you want to hear the complete series of four messages, and I hope you will, uh, that you'll have to plan to be out for both services today as well as on the 25th. And congratulations, you've made a great start here this morning. I hope you come back, are able to come back tonight. Almost 260 years ago, in 1762 to be exact, uh, aged 32, a man by the name of William Cowper uh, was in a deep depression. Uh, He was in despair. He was in agony of his soul. And he decided to end his life on earth by hiring a horse and carriage to take him to the River Thames in London, England. But as he was about to plunge into the water, the carriage driver grabbed hold of him and stopped him from jumping and and took him back home. And after he was left alone for a while, he decided that he was going to take some poison. But someone else found him in time and he recovered. But later that same night, he took a knife and he fell on it. But believe it or not, true story, the knife broke. And early the next morning, as I said, this is a true story. It's recorded about him. He tried to hang himself. And if it hadn't been for a caring neighbor who saw him and cut him down, he would have died. And realizing that he couldn't even take his own life, Cowper began to turn more and more to God for for consolation. And God brought a friend into his life by the name of John Newton. Uh, and you know that name. He eventually wrote the song Amazing Grace. And then 13 years later, after his attempts at suicide, Cowper began to write and to publish hymns himself. And the very last song or hymn that he wrote was the song or the hymn that we know today is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, how many of you know that? I'm not going to ask you to sing it, but, but how many of you remember that old hymn? Um, almost almost 300 years old. But let me just read you the words that he wrote. And you can identify with them as he did from his own personal experiences. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take The clouds you so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And you know, those words actually uh, set the stage, I believe, uh, in a a proper way for this new sermon series from the book of Habakkuk uh, with a a general title that I've given, Trusting God When It Makes No Sense. I'm sure you've had to do that at times already in your life, Trusting God When It Makes No Sense, because the words of that song that I've just read encourage us to reflect on how God uh, works in our lives. Uh, Perhaps more than we care to realize he often providentially works behind the scenes of our worst experiences in ways that can only be observed after the fact uh, like the footprints on the sand of our lives or as someone has said providence God's providence is the hand of God in the glove of history God's always at work behind the scenes even in our own lives when life doesn't sometimes make sense God's still working You know, uh, in the days of of computers uh, and the onset of computers, you know, the the, the tower uh, before laptops and all that. And even with laptops today, I suppose, you know, you're trying to search for something. You key it in and the computer starts to search. And of course, it's extra fast these days if you've got a a newer, uh, newer computer or laptop. But it starts to search and sometimes it doesn't appear on the screen. But you see that there's a little light, a little orange light, isn't there? And it's flashing away, flashing away. And you're sitting there, you know, impatient, waiting for it to come up on the screen. But that orange light tells you that the computer is working behind the scenes in the guts of the computer or the laptop. It's actually searching for what you you want to bring up on the screen. And eventually, hopefully, it appears on the screen. And I don't want to demean God, but God is sometimes like that. He's working behind the scenes of our lives, even when we don't understand what's going on. And we're impatient for something uh, to work its way out. Well, in this short series, uh, we're going to be majoring in one of the minor prophets of the Bible. You see, in the Old Testament, there, there, there are uh, two categories of prophets. There's the major prophets and there's the minor prophets. But those two designations, major and minor, don't in any way define how one is more important than The other. All that that, those names, major and minor, mean simply to describe the length of the prophecy. The major prophets are books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel, Book of Daniel. And then there's twelve shorter books called the Minor Prophets, one of which is Habakkuk or Habakkuk. It's only three chapters, uh, only 56 verses in total. And so if you haven't already, read it, why don't you read it today when you go home or or this week and you'll be prepared for for the rest of the series. It's only 56 verses. And it's the only Old Testament book that consists entirely of a dialogue, a conversation between God and man. That's what it's all about. Other prophetic books consist mainly of the the record of of the prophet's message to the people. But Habakkuk is unique among the prophets in that he didn't, at least in in, in the written uh, word that we have before us, he didn't speak for God to the people. He spoke to God about his questions for God, about things that were happening in his day, and his struggles to trust God when when it seemed like things didn't make sense. And uh, he's been referred to uh, by some of the scholars as the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. But he's better called, I think, the prophet of faith. Because despite his questioning of God's mysterious ways, in the end he trusted God, as we'll see later. And it caused him to worship God with, with one of the most magnificent descriptions of the glory of God in all of the Bible, at the end of his book. In the first chapter here, his faith is tested. In the second chapter, his, his faith is taught. And then in the third chapter, his faith becomes triumphant. So I wonder, would you just turn uh, to the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Uh, and, uh, you know, you'll be blessed, really blessed this morning if you're beside somebody who knows where that Bible book is and can help you. And if you don't know, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. Find the end of the Old Testament and then go in reverse about five books back and you'll find the book of uh, Habakkuk. Uh, So we're going to read in chapter 1, just the first 11 verses this morning. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And then we have the Lord's answer. Look at the nations and watch, says the Lord, and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gathers prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. And Father, we just pray simply, Lord, that you would take this ancient writing and the experience of Habakkuk, Lord, and you would would translate it into our own hearts, Lord, for our day, for something, Lord, that we can take away from this service, saying we've heard from you, O God, and it has done us good. And it's helpless, Lord, to trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Uh, the Bible commentator, some of you will maybe have read some of his books, Warren Wearsby, he entitles his study on Habakkuk, as uh, he calls it, from worry to worship. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written a commentary of his own, and he's called it from fear to faith. And what they're trying to capture in in the titles of their books is the progression that Habakkuk makes from questioning God uh, to trusting God. Because while he begins by worrying and being fearful about the world around him and what's happening, uh, and and God's seeming indifference and and, and, and inactivity and silence, even, Habakkuk ends by expressing real faith and and worshipping God we know very little about this man except that he lived and he preached around the same time as Jeremiah about 600 years before the birth of Jesus and yet this uh, 2,600 year old writing I believe is as modern as today as the 21st century. It's a prophecy for today and it's it's as contemporary really as the daily news. Uh, The world of uh, Habakkuk was in many ways uh, like our world Uh, He faced a world that seemed to be out of control. And he struggled with the seemingly inconsistency between the revealed nature of God and the seemingly contrasting evidence all around of evil and injustice and suffering that he saw everywhere around him. And he was trying to put those two things together. And Habakkuk was also pleading with God to do something. To do something about the increasing sin and the idolatry and the worldly ways that even that were amongst God's people. And so as we get into uh, his prayer and God's answer, uh, let me f- first put a little bit of a context into what uh, he's saying here. It was a time of major upheaval. Some 300 years before this, on the succession of, of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the country had split into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And Assyria, the major world power that had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel about 100 years previously, had recently fallen. And Egypt had come out from under the Assyrian domination and it's looking to become a, a major world power once again. But it's the Babylonians, it's the Babylonians, or sometimes called the Chaldeans, that look threateningly towards Judah. and and, and was beginning to become the the dominant power in the region. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah uh, has had a mixture of good and bad kings in the previous century or so, but it's increasingly becoming an idolatrous and corrupt nation. And so, 20 years before Habakkuk, the, the weeping prophet Jeremiah himself, who was a contemporary of his, had assessed the state of the country, and prophesied God's coming judgment. In Jeremiah 5, verses 26 through 29, he says, Among my people are wicked men who lie in wait, like men who snare birds, and like those who set traps to catch men. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful, and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They don't plead the case of the fatherless. They don't defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this, says the Lord? That was the, the judgment of Jeremiah. And shortly after Jeremiah wrote those words, Hilkiah the high priest happened to find the book of the law uh, in the temple. And he dusted it off. And King Josiah, who was king at that time, he read it to all of Jerusalem, leading to a great religious reform and revival. But you know the problems of sin and injustice and idolatry ran deep. And after Josiah's death, after that king had died, the situation deteriorated again very quickly. Because you see, reformation without repentance and regeneration never lasts. The law can reveal sin, even rebuke sin, but it can't transform men's hearts. Josiah had led a a type of reform but it was superficial, it was shallow, it was temporary and it wasn't long until the people of Judah, God's people had gone back to their old old adulterous ways again. And you know I thought about way back when, you remember 9-11 when that happened in America? And apparently in the weeks and months and for months after that, uh, Christian bookshops were inundated with requests and people buying Bibles and Christian literature. And there was an upsurge, an upsurge, a great upsurge, almost like a reformation of people just uh, in the aftermath of, of, of all of that wanting to find out what, what, what's happening today. What's God saying today? But you know, a year or two later, uh, churches were, were, were packed as well in the days and weeks and months after 9-11. But you know, it all tapered off because it was shallow it was shallow it all tapered off now Jeremiah and Ezekiel Daniel, Zephaniah all lived at the same time as Habakkuk and had also prophesied about this terrible situation that was happening in the the land these prophets of old were men with a burdensome message from God and Habakkuk was burdened as well because of the situation he found himself in there was turbulence all around the known world It was a a hope for revival at home that was fizzling out and apparently had no long-term lasting effects and injustice and violence was part of everyday society. You know, his name, Habakkuk, means to embrace. It means to wrestle with. And as is usually the case, his name has something to do with his message. Habakkuk embraced God Or if I can say it reverently, he he hugged God tight in his day. He held on to God. He wouldn't let him go. Now we don't know much, as I said, about Habakkuk, who his family was, for example, what tribe he was from. We don't know where he was born or, or where he lived. But we do know this. He was an embracer of God in the midst of a confused world. And this tells me that whether our experience of life is good Or our experience of life is not so good or even bad. The only thing that matters is not where you were born. Not what religion you are. Not what letters are after your name. All that matters is that you know God. And that you embrace him in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through. Amen. And you know as we go through this book. We'll also see that because this man embraced God so tightly. God in his love embraced him. And this is a comforting truth, isn't it? When when life doesn't seem to make sense. If you seek to embrace God, to cling to God by faith and in prayer, God will embrace you. God will hold you. God will come close to you. As James tells us in chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, draw near to God, embrace God. And he will draw near. He will embrace you. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's been certainly a challenging thought to me when God revealed it to me this week. Embracers of God are also people who are burdened by God. Habakkuk had a burden because he was so close to God. It's almost as if God himself was, was sharing with him his feelings, his convictions, what he thought, his viewpoint about the nation of Judah, about his people at that particular time. The Hebrew word for burden is the word massa. And it means it means a cargo or, or a load. Something that has to be lifted from one place to another. It's a word that was used of the Levites when they carried the Ark of the Covenant. They bore a burden. It was a responsibility. It was something that they had been given to steward. And they had a responsibility for it. And look at verse 1 where we have a mention of the burden that Habakkuk saw. And this burden was a vision that was given by God you know this tells me too that burdens will be given to those who have eyes to see to those whose spiritual eyes are open who who see the lost who see people that are dying in their sin who see the sinfulness even of their nation individually and nationally and who see the judgment of God that will surely come in the future if people don't turn away and repent Listen, I'm preaching to myself here first this morning, but is, is there someone here this morning who's embracing God so closely that you have a burden for the lost people of Monaghan or across the length and breadth of this land? And certainly if you come to the Flow Conference, you'll be given a vision of that and, and even what God is doing across this land in these days. But oh, that God would wake us up and give us such a burden in these days. You know, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, wrote five years ago, Uh, in 2014 August 29th I think it was he said as I read the news I can't help but wonder if we're in the last hours before the Lord Jesus Christ returns to rescue his church and pours out his wrath on the world for the rejection of his son I don't know if we have hours or days or months or years but as Christians God calls us to take the truth of the gospel to the ends of the earth our job is to warn sinners of the consequences of sin and show them that God is loving, as we've already heard, and he's gracious, and he's willing to forgive if we come to him in repentance and faith. So Habakkuk had a burden, but what was burdening, in, burning in this man's soul? Uh, that, what was it that made him uh, want to, as it says in verse 2, cry to God and to pray and to supplicate the throne of grace in such power and such fervency? the thing that caused him to cry even to scream before God was actually the silence of God. Habakkuk saw how the nation was sinning in so many ways how people were rejecting God going their own way. He saw his own people sinning and he cried for God to come to deliver them to save them to judge them to do something to do anything. But there had been silence from heaven. What a burden that must have been for him to bear. He was God's prophet. But if God's prophet can't even get a word from the Lord, if God won't answer him, it must mean that God is indifferent to what's going on. Or so he thought. I wonder, have you ever watched or read the daily news with with all the violence and the injustice in the world or wondered about the things that, that maybe you personally have to go through and maybe have gone through in life? Or deal with personally. And you've asked God why aren't you doing something? Have you ever cried out to or screamed at God? Have you ever fallen on your face before God? Even argued with God. But you felt that God God doesn't listen. That the heavens are like brass. And your prayers are just bouncing off the very throne of heaven. That's why Habakkuk said in verse 2. Lord how long? How long? And then later on in verse 3 he says. Why? Why? How long will this go on for? And Lord, why do you let it go on? And don't even seem to answer. It was as if God didn't really know. In verse 4 he tells God the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. Literally, the law is numb. The very law of God has lost its power. It's lost its edge. It's no longer effective because the culture of the day has negatively influenced the reverence for and the worship of God himself. And folks, what a situation it was. Sin and immorality on every every shade of gray, if you want to put it like that, were rampant. Those in government were largely corrupt and more interested in preserving themselves and governing the people. And those who applied the law applied it dishonestly and justice was nowhere to be found. And here's Habakkuk, the embracer of God, and he wonders why God would allow this. Have you wondered if maybe we're in a similar time today? Look around the world today, it's in a mess, isn't it? It's in a mess. War, famine, disease, suffering, sorrow, violence, everywhere. And if you look at the church, it's in its own mess. Apostasy, liberalism, a denial of the authenticity and inerrancy of scripture, a denial of the Deity of Jesus Christ, the substitution of the gospel with every inane type of feel good philosophy imaginable, there's no question about the fact that the world's in a mess. There's no question about the fact that the church is in a mess. And so the issue today is if God is really God, why is He allowing it? Why are we having to live with it? A few years ago in Kansas, Pastor Joe Wright was asked to give an opening prayer to the new session of the Kansas Senate. And everyone was expecting the usual politically correct generalities of a prayer. But this is what he actually prayed. Heavenly Father, he said, we have come before you today to ask for your forgiveness and to seek your direction and your guidance. For we know your word says, woe to those that call evil good. But that's exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and we've inverted our values. Lord, we confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We confess, Lord, that we've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and we call it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and call it self-preservation. We've rewarded laziness and call it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self esteem. We've abused power and we call it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbours' possessions and we call it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and we call it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honoring values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, he said. Know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Amen. You can imagine how that was received. You know, after 2,600 years, we haven't learned very much, have we? Back to Habakkuk if he thought that the situation was bad in Judah and it was and that God was indifferent and inactive in the face of it all verses 5 through 11 uh, in, in those verses he probably gets the most unusual answer to prayer that anybody ever got God broke his silence and he answered but his answer was even more mysterious than his silence because Habakkuk thought He knew what God should do and how he should do it. He thought, well, here's what Judah needs, Lord. They need a revival, God. And secondly, after they've had a revival, turn them around, make them turn towards you, God. That's exactly what they need. They need to be smashed down and punished a little, and then they need a great revival. And they'll turn to you, and everything's going to be great. (laughs) You know, we all like to prescribe, don't we, our own answers uh, to our own prayers, don't we? We pray, and in the back of our minds, we're kind of saying, "Well, God, in case you're stuck for a plan, here's what I'd like you to do." In fact, someone has humorously said that if you want to make God smile, just tell him what your plans are. Um, and if uh, Habakkuk was perplexed in the first four verses, it's nothing compared to what he must have gone, uh, what must must have gone into his brain after he heard God's answer, God's answer. Habakkuk, you think it's bad now? You haven't seen anything yet. He's been crying out, hasn't he? God, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. Now God says, Habakkuk, I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is that I'm about to correct the problems that you're concerned about. The bad news is that the way I'm going to do this is to bring the Babylonians in to destroy Israel or Judah. Not only will I not deliver you, but it's going to get worse than it is now. God tells him that he intends to raise up the Babylonians, even less godly people uh, than themselves, and and God's going to pass judgment on the people of Judah by allowing the Babylonians to take them into captivity. It's hard for us to imagine what that must have meant to uh, Habakkuk. Maybe to help you feel what he felt maybe to put it into some perspective try to imagine that you were burdened about the sinful world and the condition of the world and and the western church these days and I hope you are and you've prayed and prayed but nothing seems to change and then God answers and he says he was going to use Muslim terrorists to take over our country and destroy all of our Christian places uh, of worship Many Christians would be slaughtered. Others would be taken captive to Islamic countries where they would serve as slaves. You'd think, now hang on a minute, God. Hang on. That's the cure. The cure is far worse than the the illness. You know, the mystery of God's answer is now greater than the mystery of his apparent indifference and silence that Habakkuk thought. The Babylonians were godless Ruthless people, yes the people of Judah uh, were bad but the Babylonians were far worse. And Habakkuk can't understand why God would allow the righteous to suffer at the hands of the godless. And yet how often, think about it, do we raise the same sort of issue with God ourselves even today? Lord, why is my marriage crumbling? And yet the marriages of unbelievers are thriving. Lord, why did I get cancer when when a murderer gets off on a technicality? Lord, why did you allow me to be abused or to be hurt when I was just trying to be faithful? Lord, how can the laziest man in the factory get promoted over me? Why do I struggle financially, Lord, and yet my God-blaspheming neighbors seem to flourish financially? You see, this was a theological crisis for the prophet. Just as it is for us. Because Habakkuk knows that God is good. And he's sure that God never does what's evil. But the idea of the Babylonians coming against God's people doesn't seem to make any sense to him. How would you respond? I, you know, excuse me. I know, I know things are not going well. The country's in bad shape. But Muslim terrorists, that's your solution, Lord? Won't that make matters worse? Let me share with you a little known and and, and certainly a little accepted biblical principle. And it's simply this. Listen, suffering always precedes glory. But we don't pray for that, do we? For suffering. We pray for the power of the resurrection. But not so much for the fellowship of his suffering. All we want is the blessing and the glory. But we forget that God sometimes allows things to to get an awful lot more worse before they can get better. Listen, someday Israel, God's people of old, they're going to be glorified. And they're going to reign with Christ who is their Messiah. They're going to have the glory but not without suffering. And someday the church is going to be glorified. In that day when we meet Jesus in our glorified bodies. But it's not before we're going to have to go through some more suffering in the world. So remember this. That God may sometimes do the opposite of what you expect. But don't forget that while life might look like the, it might look like the back of a beautiful Persian rug. If you've ever had one. You look at the back of it. It's all threads and bits and pieces of random uh, threads. But on the other side. The sight that God sees, if you like, is a beautiful, glorious tapestry. And what we're seeing today is the back of the picture, so to speak. What we're seeing today in the world is the suffering uh, that the world is going to go through to get ready for the glory that's coming with the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? Someday, maybe even sooner than we think, this world is going to be in the hands of Jesus Christ. The lion is going to lie down with the lamb. And the nations are going to go in and out and see Jesus Christ reigning from the throne of David. And Israel is going to be glorified. And the church is going to be glorified. Christ is going to be glorified. But not before suffering. And until that day, this world and the church is going to go through a period of suffering. Even judgment from God to get it ready for his glory. You know, if you read the prophetic scriptures, we touched on them during the Revelation series, you'll read about the fact that in the end times there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be lawlessness. There's going to be a rise of cults and false religions called by Paul in his letter to Timothy as the doctrines of devils. There's going to be apostates and the love of many for God will grow cold. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse, not better. And listen, if you're spending your time praying for peace, You may as well forget it. Pray for the peace of God to rule in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. Not in the world. Because there will never be peace in this world till Christ comes again. And you know the lines are being drawn even now for the battle of Armageddon. When I was in Israel almost 10 years ago. I stood and overlooked the plain of Armageddon. And I tried to imagine what that's going to be like. It's going to be a terrible picture. The Battle of Armageddon, but even right now, things are getting ready. Russia, the king of the north, is getting ready. Egypt, the king of the south, and the Arab states are getting ready. And from the east, the great red Chinese guard, now numbering 200 plus million, is ready, exactly as prophesied in the book of Revelation. The Russians have even started a seven year project to dam up the Euphrates River. And the Bible says that the Euphrates will be dried up and the kings of the east will march across. The world is getting ready and there's not going to be any respite. It's going to get worse and worse before it gets better. And yet world events are under God's control, aren't they? Look at verse 5 here in in Habakkuk chapter 1. Look at the nations and watch, says God, and be utterly amazed for I, I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. You see, history follows a divine plan. History follows a divine timetable because it's his story. And he works all things together to the counsel of his own will. So listen and learn this well this morning. If you didn't appreciate this truth already, it's not God's goal to give us what we want and what makes us happy and makes sense to us. God's goal in our lives and in every situation and circumstance is to give us what brings him glory. Any one of us could say, but you know, I'm going through this tough situation. I'm going through this terrible circumstance. It's not fair. How could a loving God allow me to have to face and endure such things? Well, the only way you can get your head and heart around this is, and gain an understanding of this at all, is to realize and accept that God is other than us. He's greater than us. He's the sovereign Lord of the earth and when all said and done as Abraham said to God himself in Genesis 18.25 Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God will always do what's right. He's loving and good all the time. He cares for us and although we may not understand it although we may not like it at times God sometimes allows things that don't seem good for us that we might be involved in lifting him up In him being worshipped and in him ultimately getting the applause and all the glory by how we face some of these things. We have to get a grip as God's people on this concept of the providence or the sovereignty of God. And although it's sometimes a bitter pill to swallow, I can tell you from my own personal experience that there's nothing sweeter than the calm assurance in the midst of a storm that God's still got his hand on the wheel and he's in full control of everything concerning me and concerning you. And you might, you might even say to me this morning, but Pastor Gordon, I can think of an event, I can think of a situation, I can think of a circumstance in my life. And if I'm honest, it's hard for me to see where God was in it. I questioned why, why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to experience this? And I didn't think I deserved what happened. And honestly, I wasn't sure if God was, was there at all. Anyone like that? You've been there? Yeah. As we draw this first part of this series to a conclusion, let me quickly tell you a few things about the sovereignty and the providence of God. First of all, we have to understand, listen, God preserves his creation. Look at Colossians 1.17, where Paul, speaking about God, says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We were singing about that. In him is all we need. you know what holds this pulpit up? Or do you know what holds the pews that you're sitting on up? You may say a few screws. Uh, but it's not. It's God. God, because in him all things hold together. Without God, everything falls apart. If God is not God, if God ceased to exist, nothing would exist. And yet we generally live our lives without any acknowledgement or realisation that God is continually at work preserving his creation. I wonder, can you do something for me just as we draw this to a close? Now, just bear with me. Do something for me. Breathe in, all together. Now, breathe out. One more time. In. Out. Can you promise me you can keep doing that? (laughs) Actually, you can't. You can't, because it's God who permits us to do that. He gives us everything we need, including the ability to breathe in and to breathe out, and even the air that we breathe in and out. The Psalmist says in Psalm 104, "When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust." Folks, we could stop the sermon with just that thought alone and fall on our face and thank God that he gives us life. Not just life that came when we were born from the twinkle in an eye of our parents, but life now in this moment and this moment and this moment and every moment. And God will preserve his creation, you and I, until he decides when our breathing should stop. But secondly, Scripture not only gives us a picture of a God who preserves his creation, but also of a God who uh, preserves his creation for his own purposes. As Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him we were all chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his own will. Now, I know that there are some of you here this morning and you, know, you may be going through a difficult experience. You may be hurting in some way. You may be struggling with life in some way. And I don't want to belittle what you're dealing with But I want to encourage you to trust fully in God who works all things, the good and the bad in conformity with the purpose of his will. God was never taken by surprise. He never will be. He never says, uh oh, didn't see that coming to you. He's fully aware of everything that happens to us. And finally, there's one more thing about God's providence we need to understand and it's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. He has put everything under his feet. Oh, I love that. Everything. Everything. I looked up the translation of that English word, everything. And you know what it means? Everything. (laughs) All things. And this means that everything is in subjection to him. He has power and authority over every person and everything in your life. And nothing happens to you or by you apart from sin without his permissive will. And that's a tremendous faith-building truth that if you can grasp it, it will really be an encouragement to you. It's well illustrated in the Old Testament story of Job. You remember Job, a righteous man, a good guy. And as you probably know, Satan comes to God and does what? What does Satan do when he comes to God? He asks permission to attack Job. Why? Well, you know, if we've built Satan up to be strong and scary, and he is, and he's even called the God and the ruler of this world, why did he have to come before God? I love this truth. Even Satan has to come to God for permission because God has authority and rules over Satan. And when Satan comes under the umbrella of God's authority, it's a tremendous truth to recognize. I know Satan has some bad things that he does, very evil stuff. But here's the good news. God has authority over everything Satan does. And while I don't understand how that works, I take comfort from the truth that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Proverbs 16 and 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. God's never caught off guard. He knows what's happening. And Romans 8, 28, and I've, I've preached a message on this before, it says it perfectly. If we could only really believe it with an upward look of faith when life gets tough. And we know, not we feel, not we think, but we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. His purposes. God directs people's circumstances and events. He allows stuff to happen. I mightn't like it at times, I mightn't understand it at the time, but God knows what he's doing. When something comes against me, God is in that. And instead of looking inwards and saying, It's not fair, God, it's not fair that's not what I wanted. We have to learn as Christians that the purpose of everything is to lift God up high, to glorify him, even in the midst of that stuff. And the simple truth is that my life only has purpose and has accomplished something when he gets the glory in it. Folks, we need to get it into our thick skulls and into our hard hearts and understand that God always does only what pleases him. And yet we have this default as it were to to turn theology upside down and we're constantly consumed telling God what his business is and what he should or he shouldn't do so we can be happy when God's intentions towards us in every situation is to make us holy old hymn I think I've mentioned it before says if all were easy if all were bright where would the cross be and where the fight but in the hardness God gives to you chances of proving that you are true folks we we really need to understand these truths that Habakkuk was confronted with Sure, we don't have it easy at times I understand that I don't always have it easy life has thrown me a few curveballs balls that I didn't expect some tragic things even saints of old didn't have it easy so let me finish with the greatest example of the providence of God and that's the cross of Jesus Christ earlier we came around the Lord's table to remember him in his sufferings and before he entered his glory and as we examined our own hearts before the all seeing eyes let me remind you what Peter said in his great sermon at Pentecost he declared in Acts chapter 2 this man Jesus Christ was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus came not only in the fullness of time, but he was the lamb slain before even the foundation of the world. Even before creation, God said to him, I'm going to create something. I'm going to create someone. And they're going to make a sinful choice. But I'm going to send you, Jesus, to become sin and to die in their place so that they can be free from the burden of sin through the power of the blood and be restored to everlasting life. Worship team, I'm going to ask them just to come back up, be ready to help us with our closing song in a moment. The church and the world and each one of us individually, you know, have never stood in, in greater need than the message of the sovereignty and the providence of God than today. We need to be reminded that he has not resigned the reins of his sovereign and providential rule in the world or in our personal lives despite what may seem to the contrary. So how do we respond to God who is this much in control of everything including our lives who's prepared for today who's prepared for tomorrow working out all things according to his purposes who has not forgotten us no matter what we're dealing with because in him whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And he will preserve all that he has made, including you and me. I wonder this morning, as we come to sing our final song, are you willing to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, perhaps, for the first time? You know, things are going to get worse. Things are going to get worse in the world. You better know that you're saved. You better know that you're going to heaven. You better know that your sins are forgiven, no matter what comes at us in the world or in our own lives. But are you willing to confess Jesus Christ, maybe some of you, not only as your Savior, because most of you are saved, but also as the Lord of your life, that he rules supreme above all of the circumstances that we go through, and whatever trial uh, that you're in right now or may come your way in the future. And so I just encourage you, to take these moments to be alone with God even as we sing surrender yourself afresh to his ways and for his glory in your life come what may. Amen.